Uh, Our text for this morning is Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. Uh, This is one of those glorious texts in Isaiah that tells us about the coming of the Messiah, and it tells us that when the Messiah comes, he is going to create a world of perfect justice, and yet he is not going to create a world of justice by being some mighty conqueror. Rather, it tells us that a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. So he will come in gentleness and mercy. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, is how both of those things can be true. So Moira will read that text for us. And then Psalm 72, Elisa will read, that gives us a picture of this world of justice that God is ultimately going to create through Jesus Christ. Then Don will come up for us and read from Matthew 11 to tell us about the character of Jesus, who the one is who is accomplishing this glorious thing. And then finally, Ryan will come up and read for us 1 John 5, 3-5, which tells us in particular how we fit into this world of justice. We are the people that keep God's commandments, and therefore we are the people who create this just world. And the glorious thing about 1 John 5, 3-5 is it tells us that these commandments are not burdensome. So these are not a heavy burden that a terrible king is laying upon us. Rather, they are a gracious gift of God that are given to us by the gentle Christ. And so I hope that as we read these texts, and especially as I uh, proclaim Isaiah 42, 1-9, that we are able to see Christ anew and celebrate in this work that he is doing in us and through us to the world. So let me pray now for us to understand God's word, and then we will open his word together. Heavenly Father, we know that your word gives light, and we also know that We in our flesh are blind. We cannot see any light. And so, Lord, we ask now for you to come and just by your Spirit, remove some measure of that blindness from our eyes so that we can behold your word and so that we can see the glories that lie there. God, would you help me to proclaim your word faithfully and would you help all of us to place our faith heartily in your word as we read it and as we hear it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison who sits in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Psalm 72, verses 1 through 14. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. 
May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. All the nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. First John chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, as we come into the first nine verses of chapter 42 now, in some ways we are coming to the climax of God's words of comfort to his people. Up to this point, God's words have been very beautiful and they have sounded very nice and they have been powerful promises of God strengthening and blessing his people. But, of course, any Israelite would be fair in asking in response to all these promises, how do I know these things are true? How do I know that you will strengthen us and help us when in the past, not only have you not strengthened us, you actually have given us over for judgment? After all, the people who Isaiah is writing of in these verses are those who are in exile in Babylon. The northern kingdom was crushed by Assyria, the southern kingdom crushed by Babylon, and so God's people have every right to feel somewhat abandoned by God. And so they hear these amazing promises of God saying, I will strengthen you, I will deliver you, I will help you. And no doubt they love these promises, but they are asking, Lord, how can this be? After all, through all these generations, what has always caused problems was their own sin, their own failure. It always meant that they always lost those beautiful promises of God's covenant because they could not keep up their side of the bargain. And so what will God do to make sure that these promises ultimately come true? And that's the answer that we begin to see In 42, verses 1 to 9. Now, the full answer is not going to come until we get all the way down to Isaiah 53. But really, for the first time, here in Isaiah 42, we start to see a hint of how God will make sure these promises come true. But even the answer to this question begins with something of a mystery. 
If you look at 42 verse 1, it says, Behold my servant whom I'm whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Now, who is he talking about? My servant, my chosen. Well, if we go back just to the previous chapter, Isaiah 41, verse 8, it says very clearly, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. And so this makes it sound like in chapter 42 that God is just continuing to speak of his people as being very integral to his purposes for the world. Because Psalm 42 begins with the same words, behold my servant, my chosen. This seems to be him talking about his people. And yet there is a very fascinating shift from what we read in 41 to what we read in 42. In 41, God talks about his people as you because that's who he is addressing. And yet here in 42, the second half of verse 1 throws us a curve. It says, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. All of a sudden, he's talking about him instead of you. He's talking about a singular figure that is coming rather than talking about his people. And so it seems that while God's people are God's servant and God's chosen, there is also a different one who is God's servant and who is God's chosen. So Isaiah doesn't seem to be speaking here about the nation of Israel or about God's chosen people. He's talking about someone else. This is how God's words of comfort and promise will ultimately come true. Not through depending upon Israel or any mortal man, which will always be doomed to failure because of our sin, because of our weakness, But instead, God is saying, I am going to send someone who is a representative of you, who will succeed where you constantly fail, so that God's promises will not rest upon your performance, but will rest upon his power. And so that that title of my servant is very important. It tells us that this chosen one is not coming to somehow replace God's people or otherwise put an end to God's people, but he is very much coming as God's people. He is coming precisely in their place. Just as God's people are spoken of as God's servant, as his chosen, so this one is spoken of as God's servant and his chosen. And so Isaiah leaves some ambiguity here that will remain for some time. Is he really talking about a promised coming individual or is he talking about Israel, God's people? And Isaiah's answer to this question is yes. Ultimately, one thing I hope that we can see through this message and in the coming chapters of Isaiah is how God's purpose for the Messiah is actually fulfilled through us. God's purpose for the Messiah is ultimately fulfilled through us because Jesus came first and succeeded in God's mission. We now get to be united to Jesus in such a way that his mission becomes our mission because he is our representative. And so therefore, what we are doing in our life is we are living in union with Jesus Christ to accomplish all that God wanted to accomplish through Jesus Christ. So when God talks about my servant, he is talking about Jesus. And he is talking about us. Because we are one 
with Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's premier servant. He is the one who won the victory. But make no mistake, through our union with him, we are also to do the works that he did. So, to recap, Isaiah 40 and 41 have these incredible promises of strength for God's people in the midst of suffering and even promises for victory over their foes and victory over their enemies. And yet in Isaiah 1 to 39, we have this legitimate question arising, how can I trust these promises that these will come true? After all, God, you wiped us out. Why will you now strengthen us? And the answer to this question comes here in chapter 42, Behold, my servant whom I'm uphold, my chosen in whom I, my soul delights. This is how God's promises will be made sure as a rock, a sure foundation that can never be stripped away from us. So what I want to do now is to look primarily just at verses 1 to 4, and I want to look at these three things. First, I want to look at what the servant will accomplish, what the servant will accomplish. Next, I want to look at whether he indeed accomplishes this. So specifically moving to the New Testament and the work of Christ, does Christ actually accomplish what what Isaiah 42 talks about? And then thirdly and lastly, how will Jesus accomplish it? Or how does Jesus accomplish it? So that's where we're going. First, what will he accomplish? Second, whether he accomplished it. And then finally, how he accomplished it. So first, what will Jesus accomplish? What will this servant, this chosen one, accomplish? Well, again, look at verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is what the servant of God will ultimately accomplish. Justice to the nations. Now, what is justice to the nations? Well, if you jump down to verse 4, we see that phrase again, and it's fleshed out for us a little bit more. In verse 4, it says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. So remember that idea of parallelism in Hebrew poetry where the next line explains the line that comes before. So when it says, till he has established justice in the earth, well, what is justice in the earth? It is when the coastlands wait for his law. In other words, perfect justice happens when people live according to God's law. God's law was given To create a world of justice. All the laws that were recorded down in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, these laws were given to give Israel a picture of here is what justice looks like. When you live in this way, when you wait for my law, and when you live in accordance with my law, then you will see a world of justice. And Isaiah himself paints for us a beautiful picture of what justice can look like. In fact, I think Isaiah probably paints a more beautiful picture maybe than anywhere else in the scripture. I mean, I think Psalm 72 that we read paints a beautiful picture. But just consider these words from Isaiah chapter 11. Now, Isaiah chapter 11 is again telling us of a coming Messiah. So let me read the first four verses just so you can see how Isaiah 11 matches up with Isaiah 42. But then we're going to see the picture of justice in Isaiah 11, verses 6 to 9. So Isaiah 11, 1 to 4. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. 
So this is Jesus. He is the shoot from the stump of Jesse. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, I have put my spirit upon him. So this is talking about the same figure. And then notice what it says about this servant, this chosen one. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now that word equity is very close to the Hebrew word for justice. It's the same root word. Equity for the meek of the earth. So he will establish justice. And the parallel line there in verse 4 says, but with righteousness he shall judge the earth. So righteousness and justice are in parallel. Obedience to God's law is righteousness and justice is this flourishing world. And so what does it look like when there is justice on the earth? Isaiah 11 verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain." For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do you hear how beautiful that picture is of what the world could be like? Even those animals of prey are no longer animals of prey. Even the poisonous animals, no longer poison. Verse 9 is kind of the sum of all that they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. This is the type of world that God is seeking to bring about. This is the type of world that the Messiah, the chosen one, will bring about. He will bring forth justice to the nations. What is justice to the nations? It is that picture that we see in Isaiah 11, where everyone is at peace, where there is no hurt or destruction anymore, but perfect justice reigns. Just as one other example, consider Isaiah 32, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 32, verse 1, again has these same words that we've already read. It says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. So again, righteousness, justice. This is what God wants to bring about. Justice and righteousness. And what does this look like? Isaiah 32, verse 2. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Beloved, what every human heart is most longing toward and longing for is this world of justice. Because in this world of justice, we do find peace and we find rest for our souls. Jesus came to bring this about, to create this world of justice, this world of beauty. And so we see that God's idea of salvation, as described here in Isaiah 42, God's idea of redeeming the world is not merely rescuing individuals from the fire and then placing them individually in some intimate connection with himself. 
So salvation is not merely a me and God sort of thing. Of course, it is true that God does want to have a special, intimate relationship with each person individually, but this is not his ultimate aim. No, God's idea of salvation is when nations, when the whole earth is filled with his justice. And what is a world filled with his justice? It is a world of love and concern for one another. It is a whole society, a kingdom, if you will, of love and righteousness. So again, when God saves you, yes, he does put you in a position close to his heart and he wants you to see him face to face, but he wants you to have that relationship with him precisely so that you are empowered to go out and create a world of love and a world of justice. This is perhaps the most basic reason why church is so important. The church does not merely exist to serve you all as individual Christians, as if the church were a spiritual store and you were the shoppers trying to, see, trying to find the help that you need for your own spirituality. No, the church is important precisely because God's whole project of salvation, his project of redeeming the world, is not simply about drawing individuals to himself, but it is about creating a whole new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And this is what the church is to represent in embryonic form. We are a foretaste of this coming kingdom. Inside the church, we are supposed to be this picture of peace, of justice, of love that the whole world is crying out for. And only if we are that sort of picture do we then have this witness to the world to show them that Jesus is the Messiah who will bring this about. If we are corrupt and divided within the church, then we have no hope to proclaim to the world. We as the church must be the sort of people that are representing this kingdom of justice that Isaiah speaks of in chapter 42 and in chapter 11 and chapter 32 and in Isaiah 2. It's spoken of all throughout the Bible. This idea of perfect justice, of shalom, of peace everywhere. We here in the church are building that kind of society. And as we reach out and tell others about Jesus Christ, we build God's kingdom. God's justice comes to the world. And so this is what Isaiah 42 tells us the Messiah will do. He will bring forth justice to the nations. All over the earth, there will be this kind of peace and joy and rest for souls. This is the basic meaning of justice to the nations. Now, my second question is whether Jesus actually accomplishes this. If we look around the world today, we have no better example really than just what happened this week between Russia and Ukraine. We wonder, okay, God, are you really bringing justice to the nations? Is this really what Jesus is accomplishing? Are these promises coming true? Does Jesus actually bring about justice? Again, because justice and righteousness are so closely connected, because justice is ultimately obedience to God's law, we could also frame the question as just saying, does Jesus actually bring about obedience in God's people? Is he actually successful in that mission? And if so, what kind of obedience does he bring? 
Well, first of all, let me be very clear that the New Testament very much bears out this message that Christ intends to bring about obedience in his people, to bring about justice in his people. Titus 2 verse 14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is why Jesus died for you, so that you ultimately would be zealous for good works, so that you would be redeemed from all lawlessness, so that you would be, in short, a person of justice. Or maybe the clearest place it's spoken of is Romans 15, 18, the Apostle Paul is talking about his mission. He says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. What is Paul's mission? Yes, it's to preach the gospel, to tell of Jesus Christ. But what does Paul see as his ultimate aim? What does he think he is going to accomplish through spreading the gospel? He thinks he is going to bring about the obedience of the Gentiles. And when you hear that word Gentiles, think of the word nations from the Old Testament. That's how the Old Testament speaks of the Gentiles. It speaks of them as the nations. And so when it says that the Messiah will bring forth justice to the nations, you could equally say that what he is doing is he is bringing the Gentiles to obedience. And that is precisely what Romans 15, 18 says, bring the Gentiles to obedience. Well, let me offer up just two examples in the New Testament of where Jesus accomplished precisely this where he brought people who were formerly people of injustice, people of wickedness, people who were making the world a terrible place, and he transforms them into people of justice and righteousness. The first example, and one of the most beautiful examples in the New Testament, I think, is the woman who washes Jesus' feet with her hair and with her rich perfume. It's in Luke chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. Paint the picture for us. It says, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. So this is a woman who was corrupt, who was doing wicked things in her city, who was, who was actually adding to the injustice of the world. And yet, she learned that he was reclining at table in a Pharisee's house. And so what does she do? She brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So in this woman who was formerly a sinner, there is now abounding love for God, so much so that she would give up her most precious possession, this ointment that she has, and would pour it out on his feet. Jesus has worked this glorious transformation in the life of this individual woman. And then we see it on an even larger scale when we come to Acts chapter 2. This is talking about the early days of the church, right after about 3,000 were saved from one, one day of preaching, one message that was proclaimed. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it tells us this. It says, "...in they," that is the church, 
devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need." Beloved, this is a beautiful picture of a world of justice coming to fruition where people would actually sell their own possessions because they see that there are others in need and all they want to do is sell what they have so that they can give to the poor, so that they can give to those who are in need. And this happens in the church. This is the kingdom of God, the church coming to fruition in its mission to bring justice to the world. And so we see, at least in these two small examples, that Jesus is indeed bringing justice to the nations. He is saving people from lives of rebellion and wickedness, and he is leading them into lives of generosity, lives of justice, love, care for others. And so, beloved, Christ saves you precisely in order to bring about your obedience. He doesn't save you mainly for the emotional or spiritual comfort that that gives. He doesn't save you mainly just because he enjoys doing it and he loves you. He doesn't save you mainly because he doesn't want you to suffer the penalty of hell. No, he saves you mainly because he envisions a world of justice and righteousness. And the only way to get you to cease from being a slave to sin was through his cross and resurrection so that you could die to the injustice you perpetuate in your own life and you could become a source of justice and righteousness and love. Beloved, just as all of a farmer's efforts of plowing and planting and watering and weeding and fertilizing and all of these works are aimed at one thing, to see fruit on that tree, to see stalks on that corn row. In the same way, all of God's work in this world is aimed at one thing, that you might bear fruit, that you might be a fruitful person. And what is the fruit of God but love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control? This is what God aims to produce in you through the death and resurrection of his Son. And if this is not being produced in you, then we must question whether we have really come into that sort of relationship with God through the cross that we can display this sort of obedience. Now, third and finally, I want to examine how exactly Christ brings this justice to the nations. How does he accomplish this ultimate purpose? In particular, I'm talking about the meaning of verses 2 and 3 in Isaiah 42. There it says, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. How can it be that the one who wants to bring forth such great justice and righteousness on the earth will be a person who is so gentle as to not break a bruised reed? 
and to not even snuff out a faintly burning wick. How could this be? In our own earth, in our own human means that are available to us, we realize that justice is often a zero-sum game. When we accomplish justice, what happens is the perpetrator of injustice gets punished, and then the one who suffered the injustice gets to go free or is no longer under the oppression of the one who is committing injustice. And so it's very easy for us to see how we as human beings create a world of justice. We punish the evildoers and we let those who are victims go free. And yet we see that Jesus does not pursue this methodology. He doesn't pursue the methodology of simple punishment and allowing others to go free. There are two reasons why Jesus cannot pursue this methodology. In the first place, every single human would have to be punished because all of us have perpetrated injustice in some way or another, in a big way or in a small way. Romans 3, we see very clearly that no one does good, that all of us have rebelled against God, that all of us seek our own good more than we seek the good of our neighbor. And so if Jesus were to say, I can create a world of justice by banishing all those who are perpetrators of injustice, surely he would have no one in his kingdom. And we all would have to suffer the fate of banishment from the kingdom of Christ. So that's the first reason why Christ cannot take that approach. Secondly, this will not work because the whole categories of oppressor and oppressed are so often mixed. How obvious it is that so often those who are most oppressed become themselves the worst oppressors. The story of Liberia, where we have Ryan Curry serving as a missionary, is an example of just that. Slaves who were terribly oppressed in the United States were set free and they were able to go make a new life in Liberia. And what did they think to do with their freedom, with their new life? Well, they arrived in Liberia and they said, ah, here's other people that we can enslave and then we can become rich just like we were denied in the United States. And so those who themselves were victims of oppression became oppressors themselves. Any of you who've taken our church's training on sexual abuse, you know that most often those who perpetrate that abuse were themselves victims of abuse. And so what is Jesus going to do with these people who perpetrate injustice and yet were such victims themselves? Will he crush them? Will they be excluded from his kingdom? Again, if Jesus were to take that approach, then the world that he would create would not be this perfect world of justice that we read about in Isaiah 11. It would still be a world filled with much sorrow and much anguish. And so, Jesus comes with a different approach, not with the world's means of justice, but with means of justice that only God could foresee and only God could provide. And yet, this message of a world of justice, nations having justice, is a vision so grand. We think that surely Christ must accomplish this vision by being really heavy-handed, you know, constantly keeping on us about what we are supposed to do, about who we are supposed to be. Again, in the world, whenever we see 
a company or a general with great vision who's really trying to accomplish that vision, usually they're very heavy-handed people, right? Steve Jobs had a great vision for Apple and what he wanted them to be, but he was also notoriously terrible to people because he wanted them to fit his vision. They, he wanted them to produce the company that he foresaw, and so he didn't care if he hurt anyone's feelings, if he crushed anyone. He wanted to pursue his vision for the company. And in war, often the greatest generals are the most aggressive. General Patton, maybe the greatest general of World War II, said, nobody ever defended anything successfully. There is only attack and attack some more. And so we see in almost any endeavor in life, those who accomplish the most always seem to be those who are the most aggressive, those who are the most heavy-handed, those who don't take no for an answer. And so again, when we look at Isaiah 42 and we see that the mission of Jesus is no less than justice to the nations, that the mission of Jesus is no less than our outright and utter obedience, we start to compare Jesus to people around us and we think, oh, Jesus, he must be really heavy-handed. He must be really aggressive. He must always be on me about my behavior, about my performance. This is the only way that he could possibly accomplish this justice for the nations. And yet, beloved, the message of Isaiah 42 is that this could not be further from who Christ is. Even if in the world, human beings need to strive after greatness in these heavy-handed ways where they crush anyone who steps in their path, In the economy of God, Jesus does not need to do this whatsoever. Again, verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah 42. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Beloved, what is a bruised reed but someone who is already wounded in some way? Perhaps they are wounded because of some evil that was done to them and therefore they feel their wounds in that way. Perhaps they are uh, bruised in the sense that they have a guilty conscience. They know how wicked they are. They feel like no one could ever love them. No one could ever care for them given what they have done. These are the bruised reeds that Jesus says he will not break. In a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. What is a faintly burning wick but someone who has some small flame of love for Jesus in their hearts? There is a little bit of flame coming off, but there's all this smoke because there's all this corruption in the world in their hearts too. What is Jesus going to do? Is he going to be heavy-handed and snuff out that wick? No, it says a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And so even those weakest of Christians who still have so much love for the world in their lives, he will take them and he will lay them down deeper in the oil so that they can come to full flame. He will not crush a single soul. He will not bring justice as a conqueror brings justice. He will bring justice in gentleness. And so how does this work? Well, beloved, I believe that what the scriptures teach us is that it is precisely in his meekness, in his gentleness, that he wins our hearts. You see, when we truly understand the cross of Christ, 
When we truly understand that we were those who were dead in sin. When we were those who were deserving the punishment of God. And then we look at what Jesus did to end his own life. The way he willingly gave it up. And looking at us and saying to us, yes, you deserve to die. Yes, you deserve to be slain at my feet. But know what? I am going to die for you. I am going to give up my life for you so that you can live. When we truly understand that picture of Jesus' sacrifice for us, it melts our hearts and it causes us to fall in love with him. I think even in the world we have small pictures of this. Anyone who went to battle and fought in a war and had one of their comrades die right next to them, knows the weight that they bear for the rest of their life, feeling like their brother in arms died for them. They say that I want to make the whole rest of my life worthwhile because this person died so that I could be here today. It could have been me who was shot, but he took my place. And in the same way, Jesus gives us life. Apart from Jesus, we would have no life at all. We would have only certain death. And yet, because Jesus came and died in our place, we are able to look to him and say, Jesus, I love you because of what you have done for me. How could I deny you any of my service? I would have nothing. I would have no good thing if you had not come and died for me. I love the words of the Apostle Paul, Galatians 2.20. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Beloved, have you come to know yet the meaning of those words that Jesus loved you and gave himself for you? Beloved, if you have, you will be able to say the words that Paul says in Philippians 3.8 when he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Beloved, why does Paul want to serve Christ so dearly? Is it because he feels like God just has his thumb over him because Christ is always saying, no, you're not good enough, you better do more, you better do more? No, he doesn't obey for that reason. He obeys because he loves Jesus Christ and all that Christ has done for him. He says, how could I ever serve you enough? How could I ever give you enough for what you've given me? It is a sacrifice of willing love, not a sacrifice of fear or of demand. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 puts it this way. It says, the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ controls us, beloved. The love of Christ Not the law of God, not our thoughts of how severe God is about the punishment that awaits us if we disobey, about how he must not think we're good enough. No, Christ has bled and died for you. 
And if you understand the depth of that love, then you are then controlled by that love saying, I want nothing else than to please this glorious master who cares for me, who even when I was a bruised reed, he did not break me, but he died for me, who even when I was a smoking flax, he did not put me out, but he cared for me. He actually bled and died for me so that I could live. And so we are drawn to obedience by these cords of love. This is why 1 John 5.3 says that his commandments are not burdensome. You see, Jesus could demand anything of us, and we should be able to say, Lord, this isn't burdensome because of what you have done for me. It is precisely as we see the, the beauty and the freeness of Christ's gospel that we most want to live for him with all of our might. Again, not because he demands it like a general or like a really hard CEO, but because he won us over like a romantic husband who knew exactly what our hearts most needed and most desired. And he came and he met us where we could be found and won us with his love. And so, beloved, don't go forth and serve God merely because you fear him or are worried about what he might do for you. Christ died precisely to rid you from those fears, to rid you from the fear of the law. And yet, when we see that Christ indeed died for the likes of us, then our hearts indeed overflow and say, Christ, whatever you want, I will give. You are too beautiful for words. How can I serve you? And so we see that in this way, God is able to so transform our hearts that he creates this world of justice. You see, we become a people of love, a people of justice, not because it has been passed down as an executive order, as something that we must do, We become a people of love and of justice because we see the beautiful sacrifice that Christ has performed for us and all we want to do is to reflect that beauty somehow in our lives. And so we become people of extreme generosity for others, a people of extreme love for God, not because it's demanded of us, but because Jesus is worthy, because he is just that good. And so my hope for everyone here this morning is that we would be able to see and to know this Christ. That you would see and know on the one hand the great punishment that your sins deserved. How you had no right to expect anything from God. How you yourself were in fact an evildoer, a perpetrator of injustice. And yet you would then see how the holy God came and suffered and bled and died for the likes of you, such that you can now say, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Again, not out of obligation or out of duty, but out of thankfulness and out of delight in the love that God has shown. And so would you look to Christ this morning, as he is represented hanging upon that cross for you. And would you understand what a beautiful calling it is to then give your life for him 
and to bring about this world of justice that Jesus Christ himself says he will bring about. And beloved, in this way and in no other way will a world of justice ever be created. And so come to Jesus Christ, see his great atonement for you, and offer your very life to him in order that you may live, in an order that the world may know the beautiful justice of God. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, I thank you and I praise you for not crushing us as we so richly deserved, but for sending your Son to willingly die for us. Father, again, open all of our eyes to the beauty of the sacrifice. Lord, so that we will know how your pleasure rests upon us right now in Jesus Christ, and so that we will willingly and joyfully give our lives to all that you have for us. Would you receive now our prayers of confession and intercession to you?